Here's what's tricky about reaching Catholics is a lot of Catholics nowadays are very ecumenical. Do you guys know what I mean when I say ecumenical? Is that a familiar term, some of you? Yes, no? Who does not know what that means? So ecumenism is a movement that's been happening for, I don't know, what, Lawrence, is the 80s maybe? Before that? At least before that. I mean, it's been going a long time. See, the Catholic Church is very different than biblical Christianity, but they know that. Or they're kind of trying to merge everything together. They sign these accords with Muslims, with Protestants. They want everybody to have one religion. We can all come together. A lot of people say that. A lot of people with a voice say that. We can all get along. We all believe the same thing. Some priests will say that. They'll say, we're all brothers and sisters. You don't need to evangelize me. You know, we believe you're saved by faith. They'll say a lot of the same things, but it's not the same. And the only way you'll know that is if you ask the right questions. And you got to, it's tricky. It's very tricky. You got to be able to, it's, if you talk to somebody that's open-minded and that's interested in engaging in a conversation, you can really learn a lot. Everybody believes something different. Not every Catholic believes the same thing. 99% of Catholics don't even realize what the Catholic Church holds to. They really don't. And it's really just one giant contradiction. They've had all these different councils. They've got these uh, holy books, catechisms, uh, canon laws, and they all, there's a lot of serious contradictions in them. The only way you would know that is if you were doing your own deep dive or speaking to somebody that's been there and done their own deep dive into it. We're going to talk about that a little bit. First thing I want to share with you, though, is this quote from Pope Pius XII. Salvation depends on the prayers and sacrifices of many. Is that true or false? That is absolutely false. That is so incredibly false. But Canon 749 of the Catholic Church states that the Pope is infallible. You know what infallible means? The infallible means he is entirely exempt from liability to mistake not capable of erring. That sounds a lot like an attribute of God. And the Pope is given the attributes of God. So there's that. But I kind of mentioned this in the beginning. Catholics embrace some doctrines of the Bible. We, we share some things, like they believe in the Trinity. They believe that Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world, and that he rose from the dead. And they believe the importance of having a family. Okay, But the Catholic Church wants people to check their mind at the door. And it says that officially in Vatican II, Canon 752, where it states that you are to have a submission of mind and will given to the Roman pontiff, that is the Pope. Now, no cult would actually outright say, we don't want you to think when you come in here. But this is not just a cultic. This is worse than a cultic because the Catholic Church is apostate. They claim to hold to the truth of God's word, but they embrace occultism and reject God's word. It's worse, much worse, much more serious. Our ability to think, reason, and desire is what makes us different than all other creatures. God made us different because we have the ability to think for ourselves. Why would the world and our country embrace communism and socialism? It's happening all around us. Why would they do that? Because they're non-thinkers. And as a Christian, you ought to be able to reason and think for yourself and do your own study. And that's what we're encouraging you to do. That's how you know we're not a cult. Because we want you to think. Think about what you're being taught. Think about these notes. And if you have a question, ask. Catholic Church isn't that big into asking questions. I'm going to show you a story 
towards the end. I got to interview a Catholic priest last Monday. It was really exciting. But I had to be very careful because I didn't, he was a little nervous. He, he was kind of caught off guard. But anyways, first thing I want to say is there's a handful of main points of where Catholicism departs from the faith. And I have some notes here. If you care to write them down, you can. If not, no big deal. In year 431, they embrace the doctrine of baptismal regeneration. You're saved by being baptized. When you baptize an infant, they say that that guarantees them salvation. An infant has no capacity to believe anything. So how can an infant be saved when they're not even... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You see what I'm saying? So they try to say, well, because your baby was sprinkled with water, that they embrace that doctrine in year 431. In 500... They embrace the sacrifice of the mass. You have indulgences in 1190. You know what an indulgence is? A lot of you do not. An indulgence is where you pay the church or the priest money and he offers a mass. I probably got to explain that too. On behalf of your dead relatives to get them out of a place called purgatory and into heaven. That, they really believe that. Not everybody does, but the church teaches that officially. I probably better explain the Mass too. Who here is familiar with the Mass? Raise your hand. Who is not? Handful of you. The Mass is like a church service, okay? See, my people in my family, when they refer to church, sometimes they'll be like, so, you know, Brother James during the Mass did a really good job or something. <laughs> that's just what you say. That's just what it is. A Mass is like the service, but the Mass is technically a sacrifice. We'll get into that in a minute, but... I just want you to know what it means. In year 1215, you have transubstantiation. We'll explain that too. Year 1438, you get purgatory, the, the doctrine of purgatory. Year 1545, tradition is equal with the Bible. 1854, you have the Immaculate Conception of Mary. 1870, you have papal infallibility, as we mentioned before. 1950, you have the doctrine of the Assumption of Mary, where they teach that Mary ascended into heaven, body and spirit and soul, like Christ. That is not in the Bible anywhere. But they believe that. It's in there. And I wrote on the board seven differences. There's a ton. But I wrote seven differences between Roman Catholicism and biblical Christianity. Number one is the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Number two, there's a difference between Jesus Christ. We have different Jesus. Number three, Christ's sacrifice. Major difference. Number four, the gospel. Five, we have a different Mary. Six, sin is different. Seven, the way to God. Do these sound like the same religions? They are so different. Everything about our, our beliefs are so different. So I have here a few contrasts between what we believe about Jesus Christ, the sacrifice and the gospel that I'm going to share with you, and what is taught by the Catholic Church to this very day. So we have a different Jesus. In the Bible, Jesus is our rock. He is our rock. And there's a ton of verses on that. The Catholic Church teaches that Peter is the rock. When Jesus said, upon this rock shall I build my church, they interpret that to mean that Peter is the rock. They believe that Peter was the first pope. Peter was not the first pope. There is literally nothing in the New Testament that even suggests Peter even went to Rome, ever. He may have. He may have visited but he was not the head apostle above all apostles in all the church. If he did go to Rome, he would have been a visiting elder of the church. He was never, no, that's not in the Bible. It's a tradition. It's a tradition. He was never an authority over any of the elders. Um, 
If anything, we know that at one point he was rebuked by Paul for being an error. This is, they believe that he's the first pope, and that's ridiculous. So Jesus is our rock. Jesus satisfied the demands of divine justice. Okay, the Catholic Church believes that Jesus Christ must be offered daily in the Mass. They believe his sacrifice on the cross was insufficient. We'll get into that in a minute. He, Jesus Christ provides us with direct access to the Father. The Catholic Church believes that we must be assisted by Mary and the priest to have access to the Father. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ made believers perfect forever. The Catholic Church teaches that believers must keep laws and sacraments. And you're never perfect and you can never know for sure. He secured our salvation, the Scripture teaches. The Catholic Church believes that we have a lot of work to do to secure our salvation. Jesus Christ finished the work of redemption, the Bible teaches. The Catholic Church teaches that He continues the work of redemption to this day. And we receive Jesus Christ in the heart by faith according to Scripture. But the Catholic Church teaches that you receive Jesus Christ through the Eucharist. The Eucharist is a piece of bread. It's a round wafer that the priest offers to God. And they believe that it turns into the physical body of Jesus Christ. And they have some wine that they believe turns into the actual blood of Jesus Christ. They take... We'll get into that in a minute. John chapter 6 is their proof text for that. But they believe you receive Jesus Christ through the Eucharist. That is why the most devout Catholics attend Mass every day. When I was, a, when I was in high school, I was probably 15, I would ride my bike to the Catholic Church because I was an altar boy during the summer. And for a few weeks, I was the altar boy during the week when I helped the priest do the Mass every day. And there were a handful of really, really devout people there. They always sat in the front row during the service. We sat towards the back because we were kind of lukewarm. But with it, they have a different sacrifice. So you have a different Jesus, a different sacrifice. The Bible teaches that on Calvary, the sins of the world were offered by the sinless Son of God. For the living, offered once, perfect, finished, sufficient for all sin, it was a bloody sacrifice and it is unrepeatable. The Catholic Church has a sacrifice of the Mass. It is offered by a sinful man for the living and the dead. It is offered daily. It is insufficient. It is offered for quote-unquote past sins. There's, there's really no such thing. See, when Jesus Christ died, they say, well, you, have a, you, you might be saved from your sins today and for your past sins, but you're going to sin in the future. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, all sins were future for us. They hadn't, we hadn't even existed yet. It's a bloodless sacrifice and it must be continued. We have a different gospel. The Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith. Sinners call upon the Lord. God imparts His Holy Spirit to the believer. Believers begins the sanctification process once they're saved. Guilt and shame is removed at the cross and we're sealed until the day of redemption. The Catholic Church teaches that you have faith plus sacraments plus mass plus baptism plus law works. The priest hears your... Uh, your confession of your sins, and He forgives you of your sins. The priest imparts the Holy Spirit through confirmation. The Catholic Church continues the salvation process. Guilt and shame is perpetual until death, hoping to be redeemed but never sure. I carry it around like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, the guilt of my sin on my back every day as a Catholic. I feared God, and I knew I was a sinner. And I prayed that God would forgive me every night for the same sins. And I felt so guilty when I didn't 
say the Our Father and the Hail Mary when I was praying at bedtime. Sometimes I would be too tired and I would just say the Our Father and I'd ask, you know, I wouldn't say a Hail Mary. I felt bad about that. It's what they do. You ever seen a rosary before? A rosary is a prayer bead. So you pray, it has all, I don't know, I remember how many beads it has, but it has 10 close together and there's one and there's 10 and there's like three or four sections. You say 10 Hail Marys, one Our Father, 10 Hail Marys, one Our Father. You do it so many times and you get closer to God or something. I've done that. A lot of Catholics do that. But then, you know, I started reading the Bible where Jesus said, when you pray, use not vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think they shall be heard for their much speaking. And when I read that for the first time, my mom was in the other room with my brother praying the rosary. And I was like, oh, man. And it was like God was telling me that I need to show my mother that. And I was so scared. And I sat there and thought about it. And I was and I went in there. I said, Mom, you need to look at this. And I showed it to her. And she read it. And she didn't say anything. My mom was a Sunday school teacher in the Catholic Church. Very involved. We went to every most services on Sundays or Saturday night. We'd go on Saturday night. So that way we could sleep in on Sunday. We didn't have to go on Sunday. And I went to the catechism class on Sunday, on Sunday mornings when I was little. And then on Wednesday nights when I got into high school. But now my mom is saved. She doesn't go to the Catholic church anymore. She attends a Christian church and reads the Bible. It's amazing. Okay, but let's get right into this here. Number one, I want to talk about the differences. And then we'll get into how we, can, how we can reach them. The supreme authority of Scripture is the main difference. The number one difference we have. This is the difference between us and pretty much everybody else. Everybody else, including Protestants, Catholics, any other religion. The phrase, it is written, occurs 63 times in the New Testament alone. Turn to Luke chapter 24. Let's read a couple of these verses. The supreme authority of the Scripture, the Word of God. The Catholic Church will say, there's a big argument. They'll say, though, the Bible never says sola scriptura, meaning Scripture alone. You know, we have traditions plus Scripture. It never says that. It does, though. It does. Jesus Christ said it is written many times. And that phrase occurs 63 times in the New Testament. I want to read this in Luke 24. This shows the power of the Scripture and how Jesus Christ used it as well. Luke 24 and verse number. Let's, here's the context. Luke 24. Jesus is risen from the dead. These two men are on the road to Emmaus. They're sad. They're talking to Jesus. And it says in verse number, let's begin in verse number 29. It says, but they constrained him saying, abide with us for it is toward evening. Verse 30. And it came to pass. He sat at me with them. He took bread, blessed it, break it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? While he opened to us the scriptures. Deuteronomy 12.32 says, Whatsoever thing I command you observe to do it, thou shalt not add thereto nor diminish from it. Proverbs 30 verses 5 through 6. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee and thou be found a liar. 
Mark chapter 7, verses 10 through 13. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and who curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, If a man shall say to his father and mother, It is Corban, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, it she shall be free, and ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father and mother. What are they talking about here? They're talking about their traditions that they do to get out of doing the right thing. Making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. Jesus said this to the Jews, to the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. He said, you have these traditions that are making the word of God completely ineffective. The word of God is way more important than your traditions. God didn't give you those traditions. Some traditions aren't bad. The word of God is the authority. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. It says, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. 2 Timothy 3.16. This is, this is a big one. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why are we going through this? Because there's a lot of errors that need to be corrected, and you correct it with the Scripture, with the Word of God. And all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Those traditions that the Catholic Church holds to were not given by inspiration of God. Let's move on. We have a different Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says, But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. The most devout Catholics in the world will torture themselves so that they can feel the pain that Christ felt, so they think. And they think that that is going to give them grace from God. No, no. By His stripes, we are healed. It's all Jesus Christ. Mark 1.15, saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus said, Repent ye and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. 1 Corinthians 10, 4. And did all drink the same spiritual drink? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. Jesus Christ is our rock. Peter is not the rock. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Mark 15, verses 37 and 38. Jesus cried with a loud voice, and you read in John 19, it is finished, and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, meaning we can now access God by faith through Jesus Christ. Hebrews seven twenty five says, Wherefore, he is, also, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. The Catholic Church does not teach that. If you ask a Catholic, he might believe that. She might believe that. But that is not what's taught. They believe that real devout Catholics will be praying to Mary. And they pray to the saints that are dead, thinking that they hear them, to make intercession to God on their behalf. Jesus Christ said, it is finished. You now have access. And he lives right now so that he can stand on our behalf and go to the Father for us from our prayers to him. We have a different Jesus. 
and we could go on. There are so many other things. Let's move on, though, to number three, Christ's sacrifice. Okay, the Catholic Church believes, this is a quote from a priest by the name of John O'Brien. When the priest announces the words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne, and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a power greater than that of saints and angels. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. Can you believe that they actually say that? That sounds so blasphemous to somebody that reads the Bible, because it is. Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14 says this. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Enough said. The sacrifices that the Jews were offering could never take away sins. The sacrifice of the Mass can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. That's crystal clear. Colossians 1.14 in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. The Mass teaches that the wine turns into the actual blood of Christ when the priest says the magic words, and they will often use John 6 as a proof text for this practice. Let's go there. John 6. This is a place that they will say is, hey, this is where we get the Mass from John chapter 6. And let's read. Verses 53 through 54. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Well, that sounds pretty clear. We've got to eat his flesh and drink his blood, right? How are we going to do that? And the people sitting there listening to him were thinking, What? What is he talking about? Skip down to verse number 61. Verse 60. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? What's he talking about? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. He's talking about a spiritual thing. How do we know that? Well, I love this. I think Brother David showed this to me. I don't remember where I heard it. A great, another great example of this, why this is a spiritual figurative thing and it's not, he's not actually. One thing, God commanded you are not to eat the flesh of another man. That would completely contradict the word of God. That cannot be what he's saying. Also, you have an example of something very similar in 2 Samuel 23. Let's go there. 2 Samuel 23. This is, this is very, very helpful. He cannot be speaking about actual flesh and actual blood. There's just, there's no way. Well, how do we know that? Well, this is a good place to, to start looking. 2 Samuel 23, verse number, let's read... 
Verse number 16, And the three mighty men break through the host of the Philistines and drew water, and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink thereof, but poured it out unto the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is not this the blood of the men that went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. That was water. But figuratively, he said, this represents the blood of the men that, that were risking their lives to give me this. It's safe to say, John chapter 6, Jesus said, the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that quickeneth. They are spirit. The words I speak in you are spirit and life. This was a figure of speech. <coughs> that drink represents his blood spiritually. Very crucial. Does that make sense? That makes sense? Okay. Let's move on. The gospel. We have a different gospel. If you were to ask a Catholic priest what the gospel is, like I did, he would say something to the effect of it's the proclamation of Jesus Christ. That's a safe answer, right? Can't argue with that. It's not really true, but it's not really wrong either. But the official church teachings make salvation utterly dependent upon the priest. The priest baptizes for regeneration and justification. The priest hears confession and absolves sin. The priest offers the body and blood of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. The priest imparts the Holy Spirit in confirmation. The priest gives last rites. The priest offers mass for souls suffering in purgatory. The Catholic Church also makes it clear that one is saved by faith and by works. They'll say, oh, you're saved by grace through faith. We agree with that. But you, you cannot keep your salvation if you don't do good works. There's just no way. We'll talk about that towards the end. The biblical gospel is spelled out clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 as believing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the, forgiveness of skin, for the forgiveness of sins as it's recorded in the scriptures. That's crucial. It's recorded in the scriptures that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is what saves us from our sins. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works. Are you saved by works? Not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. John three thirty six. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Hebrews 5, 9 says, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto them that obey him. Let's move on. Let's talk about Mary. Mary was a very virtuous woman. Very virtuous woman. Looking forward to hearing that in the Bible conference when we talk about the women in the Bible. The official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, as stated in the Catechism, is that like Christ, Mary was also sinless on earth. She ascended into heaven, and she prays for men and women on their behalf, and she acts as a co-mediator, the way they word it is a mediatrix, the female uh, way to say a mediator between God and man. It says in the Catechism, paragraph 494, without a single sin to restrain her, she became the cause of eternal salvation for herself and for the whole human race. Is that a true statement? That's ridiculous. As mediatrix, she did not, quote, she did not lay aside this saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. That's ridiculous. As we know, the Bible says nothing of the sort. In fact, and these statements should shock a believer that's familiar with Scripture. 
but unfamiliar with the blasphemous teachings of the Catholic Church. Mary says in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 40, says, it says, she says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Was she sinless? She was a sinner that needed a Savior. That is obvious. And she recognized that. Luke chapter 11, verses 27 through 28. It came to pass, as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, she's talking to Jesus, Blessed is the womb that bare thee, and the paps which thou hast sucked. But he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Notice how the Lord responds to a person giving praise and honor to Mary during his earthly ministry. He emphasizes the far greater importance of hearing and keeping the word of God. She was a great woman. But no, it's about Jesus Christ. He's the reason we're here. There was another time when Jesus was a boy and they went, remember, to Jerusalem. They came back and Mary came back. She found him. They didn't know he wasn't there. They go back and they found him in the temple and he was taking questions and asking questions to the doctors and lawyers. And they said, what are you doing? And he said, woman, wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? He's in charge, not her. John chapter two, verse five. His mother saith unto the servants, this is at the wedding, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Here is the only command ever given by Mary to another individual in the Bible. Whatever Jesus says to do, that's what you need to do. Settled. That makes perfect sense. That should be the end of the conversation. But I remember in our Catholic church, there were three sections. It was a big church. In the section of the church that we sat in, there was a statue of Mary. And her foot was on top of the serpent. Because that's another tradition that the Catholic Church has is that Mary crushed the head of the serpent. I remember looking at that all the time. That's not true. Jesus Christ crushed his head. Let's talk about sin. Catholicism is famous for declaring that some sins are venial and some sins are mortal. Have you ever heard of that? Venial sins, mortal sins. Venial meaning that it is a sin that will not bring death. It's just a little fib. It's a white lie. It won't bring death. But unlike a mortal sin, which is punishable by God, the Catechism of the Catholic Church states that venial sins, quote, do not cause death, only temporal punishment. That statement is eerily similar to the statement made by Satan in the Garden of Eden. When he said, Genesis 3, 4, ye shall not surely die if you eat of this tree. Isn't that something? So we know that the Bible states clearly the opposite. Romans 5, 12. Wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin? And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Romans 3, 10 through 12, verse 23, as it is written, There is none righteous, there is none that doeth good, no, not one, for all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. Ezekiel 18, 4, Behold, all souls are mine, as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. There is no distinction in Scripture between venial and mortal sins. That's a tradition. It's an unbiblical, satanic, damning tradition. We see quite clearly that God in the Bible does not make a distinction between sins. Some sins will bring upon a man a greater consequence than other sins. That's certainly true. But nonetheless, sin is sin and the wages of sin is death. All right, the way to God. We have a different way to God. 
The Catholic Church teaches a false way to God that includes a list of things one must strive to accomplish before death to have the surest hope of eternal life. This includes water baptism, completing the sacraments, receiving the Eucharist at the Mass, entering purgatory to purge venial sins, having faith and doing good works, keeping the law, praying that the church, I'm sorry, paying the church indulgences to assist in getting a loved one out of purgatory. The biblical way to God is very simple and very straightforward. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way. John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And then you have a great example of a man who is literally evangelizing another man in Acts chapter 8. Let's go there. Acts chapter 8. There's a few other places I want to turn to, so I want to be quick. But let's go to this one. This is a great one. And when you're speaking with somebody that doesn't know this or doesn't believe this or they're trying to throw something out there that they think contradicts what you believe, this is a great place to turn because it'll make them think. And you know what? If you're talking to someone that's a Catholic and they don't convert right away, but if you make them think about what they believe and some get the wheels turning, I think that's success. You did a good job. Acts chapter 8. Let's begin in verse number 35. Then Philip opened his mouth. He's talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. And began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And this is crucial. This is so crucial. And this verse is removed from their Bible and from many other modern translations. Verse 37, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Romans says, Thou confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. Here you have this put into practice. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. They went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And he baptized him after his profession of faith. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I was listening to the testimony of a former Catholic priest named Richard Bennett. And he said that the one Bible verse that cut him to the heart each time was Galatians 2.21. Let's turn there. Galatians chapter 2. Let's read verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Righteousness does not come by the law. It comes by the faith of Christ. Okay, let's answer the question, how do I share the gospel with a Catholic? I would say to that, the same way you share the gospel with anyone. With love, do you love them enough to speak to them? With grace, be patient with the person you're speaking to. With truth, be honest, don't play dumb. With kindness, don't act like a know-it-all and don't be arrogant. Show that you genuinely care about that person. Engage in a conversation. Ask thought-provoking questions and then listen. If you're going to ask a question, don't ask a question just so you can answer it for them. Ask the question and then let them speak. Silence is very powerful. They don't, if they're thinking about something, just let them think about it. You don't always have to fill the air with words. 
When sharing the truth of God's word, you must emphasize the authority of scripture. Compare the Bible to the church tradition. Expose obvious contradictions. We talked about how the Catholic Church teaches that the Pope is infallible. This is very easily disproven, as we just read in Romans 3, uh, Romans 6, except there's plenty of places, Ezekiel 18. Refer to how often the Lord and the New Testament writers quote the Scripture to validate their words. And then refer to 1 Timothy 2, 5, where it says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Explain that what Christ accomplished on the cross is sufficient. If we could merit eternal life by works, why would Jesus Christ die on the cross? What a vain exercise. I do not frustrate the grace of God if righteousness come by the law. Christ is dead in vain for no reason. The thief on the cross is always a great example of being justified by faith, by faith alone. Be sure to explain the gospel, how it is presented in the scripture. Remember where to turn, John 1, 3, Romans 10, 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians 2. Have the person you're speaking to read those verses for themselves. That's a very powerful exercise. If you've got your Bible or you've got your phone with the Bible app, just say, here, read this. They'll read it. I've had people read it three or four times, a verse or something. They're like, wow, I didn't know that was in there. And let, them, let them chew on it for a while. Let them think about it. And then pray for the person you're speaking with. Pray that stubborn wills will be subdued by God's word. Pray for them to have an open mind. Pray that God would water the seed sown and then pray for more opportunities. And before I turn the board around, we get into some other uh, very common questions, misconceptions from the Bible. I want to tell you about my conversation I had on Monday with that priest. So I was listening to a testimony of another Catholic man talking about how um, one time they, he, he goes into Catholic churches all the time. He's an evangelist. He said, I, every time I go speak at a church, I'll stop at the local parish and I'll walk into the Catholic church and see if I can meet with the priest and witness to him. And uh, he said, one time we saw that he was in the confessional. He said, so I walked into the confessional, went to confession. He said, that was the first time I'd been there in over 30 years. And I thought to myself, what a great idea. I am going to try that. And so Monday after work, I went, to, I went to a church right by my job site. They said the priest was busy and they had me fill out this form and he would get back with me. I never heard from him. And then I called the church in DeLand. They said the same thing. They're like, here, let me write down your name. The priest, he'll see, he schedules his own meetings. He'll call you. Never called me back. I stopped at the Basilica of the National Shrine of Mary, the Queen of the Universe in Kissimmee. You ever seen that? Massive facility. Beautiful building. It's huge. And uh, one thing I thought was really funny, there was one security guard. I'm like... This is, this is just cracking me up. Like we've got an extreme security team here. And this giant facility with tens, hundreds of millions of dollars and stuff has one guy. Just, <laughs> I thought that was funny. So anyways, I go into this shrine and I'm looking around for the priest and I walk to the administrative office and uh, there was nobody there. The door was open. There was, a, there was a, a desk and next to it was a room with the door open as well to whoever runs the place. And it said the, uh, what did it say? Oh, it said the very, the very reverend father so-and-so. Like that was his title by the door. The very reverend father, whatever his name was. I thought that was pretty funny. So I'm like, well, nobody's here. So I walked around. I went to the gift shop. And I'm looking around and I was going to get a little statue from nothing else. I'm just kidding. But I'm walking around. I'm looking for somebody because other than the security guard, there's nobody there. 
And the lady in there saw me looking like I needed some help. And she said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm looking. Is there a priest around here? They said, oh, yeah, he's in the confessional over there. I was like, yes. I said, okay, thank you. And so I went over there and sat down. There was a guy in front of me, and he was, like, praying or something. I felt so bad for that guy. Then there was a guy that sat down after me. I tried to talk to him, but he didn't really say much. These people take their religion very seriously, and they really feel the guilt of their sin. And I used to do that when I was y'all's age. I would go to confession every year at Christmas time. They'd have multiple priests come, and you'd confess your sins. They'd even give you a sheet that would tell you of sins in case you forgot some. And you would go through that, and you'd sit down with the priest. And I told him everything. I really thought, you know, I, and I felt better. I'm like, you know what? This, I feel a lot better after this. They really believe that guy can take away their sins. And it is so sad because he can't. And so I sat there and I had a list of questions and I was just going to go in and ask him these questions. I'm like, I haven't talked to a priest since I was probably 14 or 15. And I don't want him to tell me to get out of here. I don't want to be too abrasive. So I walked in there when it was my turn. I was really nervous and I uh, saw the guy and I wasn't expecting the guy that I saw. I was, just, I was like, oh, I didn't expect this, but... And uh, anyways, I sat down, I said, Father Anthony, I said, uh, I said, do you mind if I ask some questions? Just a few questions that I have about the faith. I said, I was baptized, confirmed Catholic. I said, it's been a long time since I've been to confession. It's been probably 12 years or more. He said, okay, sure. He goes, uh, he goes how many questions do you have? I'm like, wow, just a handful, maybe. He goes, we close at four. I'm like, okay. He was trying to get me out of there, like, he just works there. That's just his job. That's, he's not, he doesn't really care about answering my questions. I thought that was really funny because if somebody walked into this church and they said, hey, is there a pastor around? I've got some spiritual questions. Yeah, we close at four, man. We'd stay all night. We're like, let's get this settled, man, because we care. That to me says it all. Like this guy doesn't really believe that his religion can do anything. But anyways, I asked him these questions. First question I said was, what is the gospel? He said, well, it's the proclamation of Jesus Christ. I said, okay. I said, what is sin? And how can one be cleansed from sin? He said, sin is anything that goes against God's word, and you can be cleansed by confession, receiving the Eucharist, etc. Then I said, do Catholics still believe in purgatory? He said, yes. I said, is baptism necessary for salvation? He said, yes. I said, must one be a Catholic in order to be saved? He said, no. Now that goes against clear Catholic teaching. He said, God accepts many people, even atheists. He told me a story about some atheists that have God's grace. It's ridiculous, but I said, okay. Then I said, can one be assured of his or her salvation? And he said, no, you can never really be sure. He said, that's why we hope. And I said, are you sure of your salvation? He said, no, I'm not. He said, that's why we hope. I said, okay. I said, can priests be married? He said, no, priests cannot get married. I said, is the Bible of lesser equal or more authority than the Catholic tradition and the catechism? He said, the Bible is of greater authority than the catechism of the church, which really surprised me. So then, remember he said that priests cannot get married. So I said, so how do you reconcile what appears to be an obvious contradiction to priests being unable to be married with what 1 Timothy 4 states about those that would listen to doctrines of devils and false teachers? Paul told Timothy, he said, some will come in teach forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath said to be received with thanksgiving. I said, how do you reconcile that? He said, well, that's not a contradiction. He said, it's a discipline. It's not forbidden. We're just, we have a discipline. That didn't make much sense. He says, we devote ourselves to Christ. It's not a contradiction, but everyone has their own opinion. I'm like, okay. It's very contradictory. Last thing I want to show you, we're running out of time. Everybody's being honest. But I have to show you this because 
This is probably more than likely what you're going to encounter if you ever speak with a Catholic on the street or somewhere. They're going to they're gonna know a little bit about the Bible. And one of the things that they'll say is, you know, we believe the same thing. We're saved by faith, plus we're saved by baptism because Jesus commanded it. He said, be, he said repent and be baptized in a few other places. But what, what you have to keep in mind is, number one, you've got to keep in mind, when you see the word baptism show up in the Bible, does that always mean water baptism by immersion or spring? No. The word baptize carries many different meanings depending on the context. Also, you, you, he forgets, people forget that John the Baptist, and then it repeats it, Jesus Christ says it again in the book of Acts. John said, there cometh one mighty, he said, I baptize you with water. But there comes one mightier than I that's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Okay, so you have that. Well, it doesn't always mean that. You have one that comes and baptized with the Holy Ghost. All right. There's so many other things I want to say, but if you want to write those verses down. Another one they quote is John chapter 3. I want to read this quick. We've got no time at all, but this is crucial. This is crucial. You're going to get tripped up. I've been tripped up by this before. John 3, they say, hey, this is crystal clear. Jesus said you've got to be baptized. John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Sounds like baptism, doesn't it? If you're not born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What's the context, though? They were having this conversation about birth, entering the world through birth. You know what happens when you're, you're born? Your mother's water breaks because you spent the first nine months of your life under water. You have to be born fear, physically and spiritually if you want to see the kingdom of God. That's clearly what it's saying. It has nothing to do with baptism. Nothing before, after, nothing. So that's easily refuted. Last thing. Oh, this is another one. 1 Peter 3. They try to say, well, hey, Peter says you're saved by baptism, just like Noah. Okay, well... Did Noah get wet when the flood came? No. And then the passage goes on to say, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say you're saved by baptism. And then there's this, you're saved by faith, but you need God, you need good works to stay saved. That is not true at all. Sometimes they'll go to James chapter 2 and they'll say, look, if, your faith, if you have faith without works, your faith is dead. Does that mean you don't have faith? It does not mean that you don't have faith. And you know who the example in James chapter 2 is of having faith? Abraham. Did Abraham have a lot of good works to maintain his salvation? He was a good guy. He believed God, Romans 4, Genesis 12, and God counted his faith for righteousness. But he was a liar. He was a, a pedophile. He did a lot of really bad stuff after he, after he believed God. But you know what? In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story about a rich man that dies and goes to hell and a poor man that dies. And where did he wake up? In paradise, in whose bosom? Abraham's bosom. Abraham didn't need good works to keep his salvation. His salvation was secured by his faith. So I wanted to go over that because that's something that they'll throw at you. Hope that was helpful. We're out of time. Thank you.